welcome to episode number 59 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. This is your guide to observing the constellation Pegasus. How are you, Shane? I'm okay. How are you? Doing good. We had uh, we do two recordings uh, once a week, and in between our recordings, a security setting had changed. Yeah, technical difficulties. It's the but way we it overcame goes. them. Yep. Yeah, it only took uh, half an hour, but uh, yeah. <laughs> we were able to. Last week, it was your fault. It was. Yep. You had some sound challenges last week, and then this week. Uh, I had like a weird security setting that suddenly uh, got in play, but we are here and uh, my name is Chris and joining me as always is Shane and you are listening to the Actual Astronomy Podcast where we share our love for astronomy with you and uh, I was going to ask how your break was, but uh, most of your break was spent trying to help me troubleshoot uh, what was going on with uh, with Zoom, but uh, looked like it had nothing to do with Zoom. It was all to do with a, uh, a non-Zoom application that decided to not allow Zoom <laughs> to do what it likes to do. So, um, you know, this podcast, Actual Astronomy, really is just a reboot of the one that we used to do, eh? Back. Yes, many, many years ago. Yes, I think almost nine or 10 years ago now, eight or yeah. nine years ago, something like that. Something like that, yeah. And uh, we were talking about this a little bit before the last uh, recording, but it, you know, this one really is, is your brainchild. The first one was something that I kind of had drafted up because I think I got into podcasts a little bit uh, earlier than you did. And I was like, oh, I really want to do one of these things. And, and uh, I kind of roped you into doing some of them with me, but I, I don't even know that you would really listen to many podcasts before actually doing a podcast with me in those days. <laughs> Yeah, I was lightly into them, but certainly not what I am today. Like I spend quite a bit of time every week now listening to podcasts, which mm. I think a lot of people do like, you know, podcasting or listening to podcasts has become, you know, a big way or a big part of people's entertainment, their information that they receive. You know, I think it's replacing book reading for some people. Um, yeah. and, and it's, you know, they're awesome, right? Because you can find any any niche topic that you want and there's likely somebody that has an interesting podcast about it. Yeah. And I was taking a course recently and as, as part of that course um, you could either read a journal article and, you know, working in academia and uh, and such, I read a lot of journal articles. I write some journal articles. I, you know, reading another journal article really doesn't do much for me or I could listen to these podcasts. And I was like, I'm listening to the podcast and it wasn't anything I had to take notes on, or it was just information I had to uh, take in. And it's sort of at the end of a workday anyway, and sitting and reading at the end of a workday for me, just because uh, I do that so much during work anyway, it just doesn't, doesn't really work well for me to actually, you know, gather more information through that same format. So having the option to listen to a podcast was great. I washed dishes while I listened to it. So it was great because my wife was still working at that, uh, you know, sort of early evening hours and uh, she's up working. I'm doing dishes. So I'm contributing to the household chores and I'm actually uh, able to get the information I needed to get for the, for the class. And, you know, kind of like over the course of uh, an hour or two, I would stop every, uh, you know, 15 or 20 minutes and take a couple notes. And, and that's really all I had to do for this course, like a non-credit course. So I was like, this is great. I love this. So 
Um, I hadn't actually used podcasts like that before. Have you used podcasts in your working world yet? Um, yeah, yeah, we, we do periodically. Like if I'm researching a topic, um, one of the, one of my like resources is to look on the, like the podcast apps and all of that kind of stuff to see if there's topics uh, that would be informative for me. Um, and then for um, uh, some upcoming business planning that I'll be facilitating at work, uh, instead of getting the participants to do some pre-reading, um, I'm going to actually kind of assign a podcast for them to listen to in preparation for the business planning session. So that's a great uh, definitely, idea. Yeah. You know, they're, they're being worked into all sorts of, you know, I would say maybe non-traditional routines yeah. at work that, you know, five years ago probably wouldn't have been considered or on anybody's radar, but now it's like, yeah, this is just what we do. And I hadn't told you this, but sort of getting back to our podcast here is, um, and, and your vision, cause you really set out, um, I want to say a really clear vision, but, but maybe part of that clarity was that we, we didn't want to work as hard on it, but we wanted to make it easier to do them and easier to produce a lot more of the content that we enjoyed doing versus the ones that I kind of manufactured, which were a lot more work and a lot less love, at least for me anyway. And, and you kind of uh, humored me in, in helping me with those. But I, I think that's the one thing that, that I learned anyway, when we were doing that first one is that it needs to be a lot of fun. And it needs to kind of satisfy um, that, that need of being able to produce a lot of quality content instead of trying to, to create something, um, you know, that, that is just very difficult to reproduce on, on a weekly basis, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But, yeah, well, we, we both like to observe, which takes some time. Right. We both have jobs, which takes some time. So I didn't want this to be... Uh, you know, another thing that takes a lot of our time. And I think you were of the same mind and it's working out pretty good on that front. And one of the things that you said um, very early on, I don't know if you said it on the podcast or not, was that you really wanted it like your, it's kind of like your vision of it. And I really like this was that you would, you would hear or, 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 or want people to be able to kind of take it. And we have to often drive to go and, and do our astronomy. We, we drive out of the city to a dark sky and you're, you were kind of thinking this would be something that like you or, or somebody else who, who was doing this drive to a dark site um, would listen to. And that would be kind of the cadence. Like typically we drive about 45 minutes to just under an hour. We don't like to drive more than an hour, but by driving just under an hour, we can get out to really, really dark sites. And that these podcasts are almost like your journey to that, that destination. And I don't know if I told you this or not, but I actually had, um, somebody in one of my classes who's an amateur astronomer and told me that's how they were using these podcasts that when they go out to go observing and they were going for, for a drive to, to their site, they were listening to our podcast on, on that way. So I thought that was really cool. Yeah, that's awesome. So this month uh, we're going to do a bit of a focus on the constellation of Pegasus. So um you know, I'm going to switch over to my slideshow here. Did you want me to share this with you? Um, I've got it up on You've my side. It? All right. Good yeah. stuff. Yeah. Cause we've, we've definitely had a lot of challenges here and I don't know whether it was my sharing in the, in the past session that was causing the problem too, or what was going on exactly. But um, maybe we'll start off with this. So in the autumn time period during fall in the Northern hemisphere, we have a very large, constellation called Pegasus and it's it's the horse and we'll get more into that in a moment but one of the uh reasons 
why we're starting with with Pegasus this month is that uh, the main star pattern, main asterism, which is a star pattern, is just this giant square. So it's very easy to make out. Now, in the summer, we have a triangle. So I like the fact that in, uh, in fall, we have a square. I like the symmetry of that. It's nice. Uh, although right now in the early evening, it's more of a diamond. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. Cause it's sort of on. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind it's of on of, its side, right? It's kind of on its side. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. We'll, yeah. Uh, you know, we'll, 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 but, get, we'll let you get away with that. Yeah. Yeah. But it is definitely a, a, a huge square. Like once you identify those, those four prominent stars, um, it, it's, you really just have to see it. Like compared to a lot of other constellations, it really occupies a large part of the sky. Yeah. So do you have like sort of a first or early, like, you know, instead of just diving right, right in and going through all like the history and whatever, what's sort of like your first impression? Like when do you first remember seeing Pegasus and how did you learn it and, and how have you used it in your amateur astronomy? Um, you know, growing up, uh, living just outside of Regina in a smaller town, um, the skies were pretty dark at that time. Um, and not that you need dark skies to see Pegasus, but I do remember, again, that square of Pegasus being kind of a prominent thing in the fall and, and uh, going on into the winter. Um, but never really, like at that age uh, and growing up, I really wasn't too into identifying constellations. I just could identify patterns in the sky. And mm -hmm. this is one of them. Um, yeah. when I actually learned about the constellation of Pegasus and, uh, started actually observing it was, uh, when I really got into astronomy with my first serious telescope in 2003, mm -hmm. um, one of my first observing projects was to observe the entire Messier catalog, 110 objects. And, um, uh, M15, uh, is a globular cluster in Pegasus. And, yeah. you know, one of the neat things about um, these observing lists is that it, in a way, it forces you to also learn the constellations, right? Because mm -hmm. you can't find M15 if you can't find Pegasus. Yeah. And um, so how many times have process, I said that? I'm just. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but no, it's have true. I every it's, time, every time. <laughs> it's true. It's true. And you're yeah. the only one that's ever said that to me. Um, <laughs> exactly, though. No, that's a good point. That is a really good point. All joking aside. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's probably my, you know, I guess it's my history with Pegasus. Yeah. Um, yeah. How about you? Yeah. Well, it was, it was one of those, um, you know, it seemed like a very obvious star pattern mark in uh, the books. Now I hadn't like you, I hadn't noticed it uh, in the sky prior to, to seeing the, the large square. And when I, uh, when I first went out to try to ID it based on, uh, I was using Terrence Dickinson's Nightwatch, which I think anybody who's looking to get into um, stargazing and amateur astronomy should own a copy of Terrence Dickinson's Nightwatch. Um, I saw it in there. I was like, oh, that's going to be easy. And I went, no, and I couldn't find it, couldn't find it. Didn't find it on the first night. Second night, I was like, oh, geez. Like, I'm like, wait a second that's it it's huge right on the on the page it's just you know a couple centimeters across but in the sky you know each side of the uh, square is just about 15 degrees although i think one of them is like 12 degrees and uh, if we remember from from the earlier lessons your fist at arm's length is 10 degrees so it's really really big eh? like it's one of the biggest sort of central features of of a, of a star pattern in the sky all in one constellation yeah. Yeah. And, and again, the scale is just, 
like when you look at a star chart and then you compare the star chart to the sky, sometimes the scale just doesn't get represented very well on paper. Right. And this is a great example of it. Um, it, it. It really is immense. And if you compare it to even just normal constellation or, or well-known constellations like Cassiopeia, um, it, it's quite shocking how large it is. Yeah. Um, and then the way that I use it. So, and I don't know if you've, you've heard this before, and I, I can't remember what the, uh, uh, what the numbers are, but there's a series of stars. And I think they, there's one in the top left and there's, there's a bunch in, in the bottom right of uh, stars that are sort of progressively fainter and fainter. And if you're in a dark site, um, what I like to do if we're in a dark site, I like to count and see, my, see how many stars inside the square of Pegasus I can count just with my eye, not with a telescope or binoculars or anything. Um, and then based on that number, and the, the, the thing I really like about doing that is based on that number, then I can go uh, later and see how deep I was seeing. And I like mm. that because it's a very large, clearly defined area that doesn't really have that many stars in. I think, I think at most, maybe it has a couple dozen stars, say that you could theoretically see with your, your naked eye. Um, so I like that. And, and it's just, it really is a, to me anyway, it's been a great way of, of training the eye. And at my folks place, which is uh, right on the North Atlantic, just, uh, you know, for, for those that are familiar, it's a famous spot called Peggy's Cove. Um, we're just outside of that, that village. And, you know, uh, right over the North Atlantic, uh, the backyard kind of faces south and, you know, uh, I can see Pegasus nice and high there when I'm visiting. Uh, and when I, when I live there and yeah, I always enjoy like counting the stars in there just to see how many, cause that's like my darkest area uh, of the nighttime sky. And yeah, it's really cool just, just to see, um, you know, what you can see in that square, but it's a great guidepost for, for this time of year. And you can really use it as, as a leaping off place, um, to go to Pisces or, or Aquarius or north up into Lacerda, and in particular for Andromeda, finding, finding the Andromeda galaxy. But right now, you said it's like a, like a diamond um, because it's sort of as it's rising in the, in the early autumn hours, it's on, its, on its edge. And Mars is about a Pegasus diamond to the, to the east. Of, of the great square. So if you kind of go out, you can find Mars so bright and orange right now. Um, you go just, just above it. And, and that's, that's kind of where this, this giant square is. And there's not that many other large uh, constellations or, or stars in the autumn sky to really act as guideposts, but Pegasus and the great square of Pegasus, uh, this really is, is the dominant pattern, wouldn't you say? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You, you, you can't miss it. Yeah. Now, one of the interesting things I mentioned, some of the adjoining constellations is that um, the top left or the, uh, the northeastern star uh, is actually Alpharats, which is not a star in Pegasus at all. It's a star in the constellation of Andromeda. But we still sort of tie it into to make that pattern. And any pattern that we talk about, this is uh, an asterism, although we use the terms asterism and constellations somewhat interchangeably. Um, but to make this, this square uh, star pattern, we actually have to borrow uh, a star from Andromeda. And this is uh, a 2.0 magnitude star. And uh, all of these stars that make up this square are second magnitude. So that's one of the other easy things that, that, that it makes to draw out this pattern 
is that it's a square and the stars are all more or less of equal brightness and the sides are all about 15 degrees. Although I think one of them is, is just slightly under 15 degrees. We still there, Shane, or did I drop off again? Uh, still here. Yeah, I'm, okay. I, you might have dropped for a second or two. Okay, no worries. So Pegasus is named after the mythical winged horse. So do you know much about the mythology of Pegasus? Not a lot, no. All right. So it was first mentioned that this isn't myth mythology. This is a fact. It was first mentioned by Ptolemy in the, in the second century. And uh, he was... Um, one of the creators of sort of a package or a, a uh, early guide to a set of constellations. He actually had 48 constellations and he brought them together in his work called the Almagest. Um, and of course, uh, it, it, you know, Pegasus got its name from the Greek winged horse, uh, Pegasus, which, uh, you know, uh, Pegasus was born um, uh, after Perseus had beheaded the Gorgon Medusa. Uh, and her blood mixed with the seawater and, and created this, this fabulous creature of Pegasus. But Pegasus was mortal, though, um, because of its lifetime or lifelong association with, with Perseus and Andromeda. Uh, on the last day of its life, it was made into a constellation. And then that's, that's why we see it today. And it kind of looks like a horse. But you know what's neat is it's, it's sort of uh, on its head. And it's just really the front quarters of the horse, eh? Yeah, yeah. What's interesting too is there's references to Mesopotamia and and Pegasus being a winged horse in that time period as well, and, and mm -hmm. how they perceive the stars. So I'm always fascinated when there's you know big gaps in time between you know ancient civilizations, but when they all sort of see the same feature in the stars or the same character in the stars, I, I think that's fascinating. Yeah, it's it is kind of neat, and it it probably is. Uh you know, sort of homage to the, the fact that many of our uh, human populations originated from similar places. And uh, these, these stories were created as an oral uh, history and an oral tradition. And then as peoples um, sort of moved around or, or came in, into prevalence in different areas, they adapted their own cultural uh, beliefs and mythologies, uh, you know, around the night sky and the star patterns. Some of them still have the same patterns. They just have completely different um uh, sky lore and, and uh, astrological uh, meanings for them. So for example, um, both the, uh, the Greeks uh, and uh, the Mi'kmaq first uh, persons from, from Nova Scotia have the, uh, have the bear in, in the Big Dipper, um, but they both have a completely different uh, sky lore around that. Uh, you know, the Greeks, it, it was, you know, basically just, just this bear. And then there was a little bear and the business of those versus um you know, the Mi'kmaq star lore legend, which is that uh, the bear was being hunted. And then as the, the bear was uh, shot with a, with a spear or, or wounded in that hunt, uh, it would bleed. And it's that, that bleeding, which causes the leaves to change color. Many of the leaves in Nova Scotia turn a very brilliant red. And it's supposedly, you know, emblematic of, the, of this blood coming off of the bear, which I always, you know, that has a lot of meaning for me as, as a person from that area of the world uh, versus maybe some of these other uh, sky lore and, and myths. I've never been to Greece, uh, so I really can't, can't speak to any of that. But uh, it is just kind of interesting, though, like you say, how, how many of these uh, patterns are, are so similar, although some of them 
some of them are are quite different. Oh, corona borealis is seen as a as a sweat lodge uh, versus a a crown like it is uh, in Greece. So yeah, really neat. Mm-hmm. And let me tell you about Aquarius, Chris. <laughs> so we were supposed to do a. I got my my lines crossed this week, and I think. I've been doing a lot of late night and early morning astronomy. One night I stayed up till midnight. One morning I get up at three and I'm going back and forth. And, uh, and I, I asked Shane what constellation he wanted to do. And he said, Aquarius. Yeah, no problem, Shane. And then I sent him the notes and he's like, what's all this Pegasus business? <laughs> I'm, I'm well prepared for the next one. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> now it'll be Capricornus. of course of course yeah so how do you find how do you find the great square well i just look to the east right now um again it's it's something that is really hard to miss um at least once you find it um a little like a helpful tool can be those little planetarium um kind of slider things like you rotate the wheel uh, to align it with the date and time that you're looking at the sky and yeah, the planet that can help you find. Yeah. yeah, that's it. Planetosphere. Uh, that can help you find these constellations, but essentially you look East about probably what 30 degrees up and uh, yep. there it is. Yeah. And it kind of sits sort of uh, a little bit closer to Cassiopeia kind of partway between Cassiopeia and, uh, and the summer triangle. And uh, if you kind of look in that general area of sky, these are the four brightest stars and they just form this huge, square in fact you could you could fit cassiopeia inside the square of pegasus maybe that's a good way for people to uh to think about it and of course um even though andromeda and the andromeda galaxy uh is not in uh, pegasus i use uh Alphrats as the leaping point to kind of go down that chain of stars and then up that other chain of stars to find uh, the Andromeda galaxy. So in many ways, I kind of th- think of Andromeda galaxy as being uh, more closely associated with, uh, you know, with, with the Pegasus square than, than maybe with the Andromeda itself. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. So we've got uh, a globular cluster there. You mentioned it earlier, but uh, Messier uh, 15. Now, did you have anything uh, else you wanted to sort of add about that? I've, I've got some sort of facts and figures up there. So. Well, I think it's one of the oldest globulars uh, in in our uh, uh, galaxy, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Um, which globulars are often, you know, a collection of the oldest stars, but this one is exceptionally old. Yeah, and it's it's far. Eh? I was surprised how far it is. Thirty three over thirty three thousand light years away. I mean, I think our galaxy is like just like a hundred thousand light years across. So it's like a third of the way across our galaxy. Am I correct in that? I mean, that seems phenomenal. Yeah. Yeah, I think you are. That, that all sounds right to me. Yeah, I mean, you know, when we're out looking at them, we're often not really thinking that much. I know some people really get into the, the distance to things, but often it becomes uh, a little bit meaningless. But when I see a number that's pretty much like exactly a third of the distance across our known galaxy, I'm like, that kind of gets my attention. Um, and it's got like 100,000 stars in it, including many variables, pulsars, has a double neutron star and there's a planetary nebula in here. Did you ever see the planetary nebula in M15? I think it's like P's one or something like that. Yeah, I don't think that I have. Did you ever try? Um, it doesn't stand out. I don't think I have even looked for it. How about you? Yeah, I'm just sort of looking it up now just to see which, yeah, it is, it's P's one. I was just, one of my challenges, we do this unscripted, right? 
And I'm just kind of riffing like we would in a conversation. I'm like, is it P's one? Is somebody going to call me on this? It is. It is actually P's one. And I have seen it. The, uh, there's two planetaries you can see easily in other objects. So I think there's one in M4. Uh, P's one is in M15. And then there's another one in, I think it's M46, which is an open cluster just off of uh, Canis Major. I think it's in the bottom of Monoceros or or uh, something like that. Uh, yeah, I've seen it. Uh, not that difficult to see in a 12 inch. So I actually didn't hunt it down. My friend Clark hunted it down. I was chatting with Clark uh, a few weeks ago, working on another project together. And uh, he's been listening to the podcast and really enjoys the fact that I do mention him from time to time. And he was just, he was in, he's in Ontario and uh, one of the people I miss, miss most uh, from my time in, in Ontario and all the observing that, uh, that we did together. So yeah, he did. I think it was him that showed that to me once. He was pretty good for hunting down some truly uh, unique and fascinating objects. And he is definitely more into the history of astronomy than I I really love the history of astronomy, but he's now chair of our history committee. So he would like know a lot of the history and historical significance of this, this stuff as we were observing it really kind of brought the night sky to life. Really a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. I, I do enjoy the, uh, I, I'm, I don't know a lot about uh, like the history of observing, but, um, you know, you bring a lot of that into the podcast and I learn a lot from it. So it's good. Yeah. Yeah. That's one thing I really enjoy is, is that history of like, in that, that connection with the, the past astronomers, you know, and, um, my wife who probably gets more astronomy than she ever would care to, she actually comments on this and, and she's like, you really are, you know, somebody who, who is kind of, you know, going to see it eye to eye with, with those past astronomers like Herschel and, and Barnard and that, because um, I tend to kind of observe in, in the same ways, like she's watched a lot of documentaries. She's like, that's how you do it. Like, you know, like how Herschel would stay up all night at the tele. She's like, you're, you know, you're out there. Like <laughs> she says, nobody, a lot of people aren't going to go out at minus 20 and stick their eye to an eyepiece for three hours. And she's like, I know you're out there doing it. Cause I hear the door slamming and it's waking me up. You know, <laughs> so. <laughs> Um, one of the most interesting things ever found in Pegasus though, was, do you remember what this was? This, it was the first uh, Einstein's cross. Einstein's cross. You've jumped ahead. Yeah. There's a couple things. Oh, oh okay. Sorry. I, I was going to go with the, uh, but yeah, I mean, that's one of the, um, there's a lot of interesting things up in Pegasus. Once you start looking, there's a few things you can see with a telescope. It's easy to see with the unaided eye, the naked eye, the whole pattern, um, and you got M15 there, which we talked about, but it's also home to 51 Pagasi. Do you remember what that is? This is the, uh, uh, this is the, uh, first star discovered with an exoplanet. That's right. Yeah. And I remember when this, this was announced, it was, uh, somewhat controversial, but, uh, the Swiss astronomers, Michael Mayer and, uh, Peter Korlaz announced that, that they had discovered it back in 1995. And I remember that because that was the year that I really, began taking this uh, astronomy business uh, much, much more serious in my life. Up, up to that point, I'd kind of been a bit of a stargazer, could recognize a few constellations and went out and watched meteor showers and that sort of thing. But 95, I really, for whatever reason, became really interested. We had, uh, you know, uh, Shoemaker Levy 9 had, had just collided, I think the previous year with, with Jupiter, uh, or maybe it was two years before. Anyway, within the past couple of years, there was there were some other comets. I think Comet Hale-Bopp or something had been discovered around that time, and it was it was known it was going to get brighter. 
Um, there was a whole pile of things in this business of 51 Pagasi. And it's not that faint, although I, I didn't mark it on the chart. I think it's like eighth magnitude or or something like that. Like you can actually, and I remember going out with binoculars and finding 51 Pagasi. And you know, here you are with a pair of binoculars looking at a star they now know has a planet around it. And that really changed uh, you know, humanity's view on, on the universe, that in fact there are other planets around stars up until 95 it was only conjectured that other uh, stars could have planets around them. But, uh, but at that time, uh, you know, it was finally discovered uh, that, that these planets did exist out there and they found thousands and thousands of them since I think. Yeah. Yeah. So, so an exoplanet is a, a planet outside of our solar system orbiting another star. There you go. And I'm fascinated by this as well. Um, yeah. Because like you say, uh, it's really in our recent history, our lifetimes, that it was unknown whether or not our solar system was extremely unique or extremely common. And since 1995, um, when the first, you know, 51 Pegasi um, uh, was known to have a planet orbit around it, um, thousands and thousands more have been discovered. And what we're finding is actually that our solar system is quite common um, in terms of I shouldn't say our solar system is common, but it's common for planets to be um, um, rotating around other stars. And what's what's really interesting, like we, we could probably go on for an entire episode or two on exoplanets, but um, the, the composition of other solar systems in terms of like Jupiter-sized planets being exceptionally close to their, their host star or exceptionally distant from their host star like there doesn't seem to be a real common makeup of you know solar systems abroad which is very interesting like that area of research is really i think in its infancy and um you know i think a lot of exciting discoveries will will come in the future you know you know regarding exoplanets i'm gonna agree with agree with you on two key points but for not reasons you're gonna think one yes it would be amazing to do an episode or two on exoplanets alone two Yes, this science is in its infancy. And I can say that with great conviction because somebody drafted out and proposed an exoplanet course at the university and then bailed after like 30 or 40 people had registered for it. And I ended up teaching that class. And I can confirm there is not eight weeks of material to be taught on exoplanets yet. <laughs> <laughs> and it was a little rough to, to kind of get in, into, into that for, for me as a, as a non-science major. I think you could probably draw a lot of um, connections between uh, geology and, and some, other, uh, some other things and, and sort of the types of stars that uh, these planets tend to orbit. But uh, to do two episodes. Yeah. Yeah. You could probably do two really good hours on this, trying to do uh, dozens of hours on this. Uh, no, <laughs> there's just not yeah. that much info out there. Yeah. And maybe one quick point too about exoplanets is they're not visually observable there. You can look, you can find the host star, but you're not going to actually see a distant planet around another star through a telescope. Right. Even like the Hubble Space Telescope, I think, has only just barely managed to get like a pixel or a shadow with the size yeah. of a pixel or something like yeah. that. So T typically, anyway, moving... like how they're sorry, just one quick, no? one more quick point is typically how they're observed is is by a, a reduction in magnitude of the host star. So when when the planet, from our perspective, transits across the face of its host star, 
the magnitude of that host star will drop a little bit. And, you know, sometimes just the drop in magnitude is the observation of that exoplanet. But, but yeah. I digress. Carry on, my mm -hmm. friend. Yeah. Well, uh, we'll talk about Einstein's cross next, but you and I have a connection with Einstein's cross, uh, if you recall. So Einstein's cross is uh, essentially what we're seeing is a visual anomaly caused by gravity. And it's a bright set of um, galaxies way in the distance uh, that are kind of getting uh, sort of split apart and the light is coming in at different, uh, you know, I guess different frequencies so that you have this, what's called gravitational lensing. Um, and what it allows uh, a point source in the background to do is to be magnified by gravity uh, such that you you can actually see it from uh, 38 million light years away. So there's this quasar that sits in behind this galaxy, uh, and then it's um, you know kind of getting split apart, but but magnified just sort of sort of badly. But the the galaxy at the center of the image is NGC 7331. Do you remember we went out one night and you and I observed that in your 12 inch when you were using it? I don't know if you remember. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and you know what I didn't realize about that galaxy is that it's one of the first objects uh, described as a spiral nebula um, by William Parsons mm. in uh, the late 1700s. Uh, so I found that interesting too. Um, mm. You know, I, I can only imagine how exciting that observation would have been at that time. Wow. Yeah, that is, uh, that is pretty neat. Very neat. And there's a lot of galaxies out there. In fact, uh, Pegasus has... Uh, you know, this whole series called uh, Stefan's Quintet. And it's, mm -hmm. it's a big grouping of uh, NGC1, which is neat because that's the very first entry in the new general catalog. And then on the flip side, it has some of the, uh, the highest NGC numbers, uh, 7479, you know, and, and it goes on and on and on. I'm not going to list them all, but, uh, and then I think it's all the galaxies between 7,317 and 7,320 and blah, 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 all known as uh, Stefan's Quintet. And I think uh, all in all, there's like uh, 100 uh, billion galaxies in, in the known universe according to the Digital Sky Survey. So it is kind of, mm -hmm. and you know what, one of, one of the claims fame, here we are, we're coming up a couple months away from, from Christmas. Do you know the, the Christmas connection to Stefan's Quintet? No. Sort, sort of like a bit of trivia here pretty obscure <laughs> so what you're, is it? you're frantically googling i i'll save no, you the uh, no the, I, the, the I, i'm uh, I'm, I'm frantically <laughs> opening a, a book that i, I want to read a, an excerpt from but <laughs> i'll let you finish your trivia here so so stefan's quintet um this grouping of of galaxies um was being studied in the uh, early and, and mid uh 20th century uh, around the same time that the movie It's a Wonderful Life, the Christmas movie with uh, Jimmy Stewart, was being filmed. And these, these images of these galaxies um, became so well known and uh, widely publicized in the media at that time that they were just infiltrating everywhere, kind of like the Pillars of Creation or, or some of the other astronomical uh, images from Hubble uh, have today. Um, such that they had to have these angels talking at the beginning of It's a Wonderful Life. And the image that they used to denote each of the, whatever they were, three or four angels, they actually used the galaxy photo 
uh, I think from Mount Wilson. And then, then they would just sort of light one of them up to denote which, which angel was speaking. Anyway, a little bit of trivia there for you from It's a Wonderful Life. Yeah, but go ahead with your, your quote from the, from the dusty old book. I didn't know people even used books anymore. Well, so this is from the Observing Handbook and Catalog of Deep Sky Objects by uh, Brian Skiff. Um, and what I like mm. about this is it talks about how a galaxy will look different in the eyepiece, depending on the aperture that you're using. And a number of the write-ups in this book talk about how the objects appear uh, through different apertures, which I really enjoy because it okay. helps give you an idea of what you'll see. So regarding 7479, uh, a galaxy... So I'll just read straight from the book here. In a 60 millimeter telescope, this gal galaxy is faintly visible, uh, just lying off the north end of a one degree string of five magnitude eight to 10 stars. Uh, the object itself is small, uh, concentrated spot. Uh, let's see here. In a 15 centimeter, so this would be a six inch telescope, the poorly concentrated but modeled halo is about three by two, what would that be, arc minutes, I think, or arc seconds? Um, arc minutes. Uh, elong yeah, arc minutes. Um, with a 25 centimeter, so now this would be a 10 inch telescope, um, uh, a magnitude 13 star lies at the northern edge and the galaxy still shows no overall central concentration, but the surface seems mm. modeled with faint star-like spots. In a 12-inch telescope, uh, it shows an unevenly bright bar-like object whose southern end curves towards the west. A faint star is visible at 45 mm. degrees southwest of the small, slightly brighter core. Uh, faint knots are visible mm. as well. So I just think that that's fascinating huh. to see how, like, as you go from a, a very, very modest 60-millimeter uh, telescope, or, a, you know, what would that be, I guess, a, about a 3-inch? No, 2-inch telescope. Uh, all the way up to a yep. you know a pretty good size twelve inch uh, Newtonian, um, so uh, that gives everybody just an idea of how the view can change with aperture. And uh, again, yeah. a shout out for this book because a number of objects have those descriptions about what you can hmm. see with varying sizes of telescopes. Yeah. So, what book is that again, Shane? It is. It's called uh, the title: Observing Handbook and Catalog of Deep Sky Objects. Uh, the uh, well, there's two authors. Brian Skiff is one, and then Christian Luga, Lugenbuhl, maybe. Lingenbuhl, uh, I think. Yeah. Lingenbuhl. There we go. Ling Lingenbuhl and Skiff. Yep. That's the perfect. Names. Yeah, I have two copies of it. <laughs> yeah, it's a great book. So my, I love my, it. my, I was very just joking on on the book business, making fun of myself for my literally hundreds and hundreds of astronomy books that I have here. So, you know, it's interesting every every time. Um, you, know, you say something about the uh, like the central bar in a galaxy. So you, you know, I'm a fan of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I am. Yeah, and uh, did you ever did you ever read the the bit about uh, Milly Ways at uh, the end of the universe, the restaurant at the end of the universe? I've never read it, Chris. You might not talk to me ever again. But yeah, no, no, it's okay. It's, it's yeah, it's it's right next to the the central bar. <laughs> <laughs> so, that that's some pretty good geek humor there for you on yeah, a Sunday yeah. afternoon, Shane. So yeah, perfect. <laughs> <laughs> well, those are those are kind of my notes on uh, on Pegasus. I was looking up here in my last uh, screenshot here. I actually have uh, have a capture showing that there's 26 stars, magnitude 6.3 or brighter. 
Um, and from my, my observing notes at, uh, at my folks place, I can get 23 stars. So I can get right up to about magnitude 6.1 ish. Um, yeah, I think get right to 6.1 can't quite get 6.2 or 6.3, at least the last time I, I did it. Um, maybe a few of the, the brighter 6.2s I, I must be getting, cause I see there's quite a few 6.2s, but yeah, I can, I can definitely get into the sixth magnitude, uh, from that site, not bad. That site's only uh, 30 uh, kilometers from the core of Halifax, Nova Scotia. So yeah, that's a city gee, that is 100,000 people. Yeah, so that is good. Not yeah. too bad, not too, not too shabby, but uh, you got to pay the price by trying to observe over the North Atlantic, which uh, that can be chilly, almost as chilly yeah, as yeah. here. <laughs> at the time, so. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah I think, well, do you I have think any, for, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, for people that are thinking of observing Pegasus, the, it's very easy to see the square from an urban center. You yeah. know, those four main stars are quite bright. However, if you want to um, observe objects within Pegasus, um, this really is a, a dark sky constellation um, because there's just so many galaxies in Pegasus. Um, and if you're hunting down galaxies, you really do want dark skies to take in um, you know, any amount of detail that you might be able to see as well as the extent of the galaxies that you're trying to observe. Um, but it's a mm -hmm. wonderful constellation and there's, there's a lot to see there. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. I really like it. It's just, I, I think it's actually kind of a pretty constellation. Um, and, and in particular the square, just because it's, it's so easy to see it's so large. And then it has all those really pretty faint stars, uh, inside uh, inside the, the square there. So yeah. Well, Shane, I think uh, that's pretty much a wrap for, for the, uh, our guide to the constellation Pegasus, unless you have anything further to put in for it. No, that's it, Chris. All right. Well, how can people stay in touch with us? Uh, they can find us on Twitter. We are at actual astronomy. Uh, you can email us. We are actualastronomy at gmail.com. And you can also leave uh, comments or feedback on any of the podcasting platforms. Yeah. And I mean, and, people uh, go ahead. Yeah. I was just going to say, and, and, you know, if you have questions, send them our way. Um, what we'll do is like, as we receive questions in the, uh, like particularly so far, anyway, it's been in the inbox via email. Uh, we reply to all of those, but then we also queue them up for a future mailbag uh, podcast episode where we discuss all of the questions that were asked. And then you and I have a discussion about how we answer them and, and um, you know, share, share that stuff with everybody that listens. Yeah, we, we uh, will tend to elaborate a little more on those. And, uh, and, and Shane, you know, it's, it's really great. You're, you're replying to those, you share the questions with me. And then I think you, you make sure you get a get a reply off uh, within a two or three days. I think I think to individuals that write in, um, and then of course um, you know we can discuss it. Like you shared one with me this week, and I just thought that listener had uh, had some really really good questions. Um, I think they're they're early into their astronomical journey, um, but I thought that their question was really good for anybody, whether they're just starting out in astronomy or or a long term. Um, amateur astronomer as well. You know, one thing to put um, a pin on for that one, just while we're talking live here, but it's, so I don't forget is I had a question from um, somebody that contacted me outside of, of, of this podcast, though they are a podcast listener and somebody that I know. And they said, Hey, how do you, how do you actually um, go through the focusing process? Maybe is the way to put it. 
And so um, like, that's really like what, what the question was. And so recently I kind of went through um, how I actually get a telescope to, to focus in properly uh, to get fine detail on an object. And it was something I hadn't really thought about um, in such sort of a, a quantifiable way. So maybe we can even, even address that when we do a mailbag, might be interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great one. Okay. Well, thanks so much uh, for this, Shane. Thanks for, <laughs> thanks for your flexibility and your understanding that I got my course notes and my um, <laughs> podcast notes mixed up. And uh, I'm sure that uh, we'll enjoy doing Aquarius at a future point in time. And I'm sure my, my class will in Enjoy hearing about Pegasus at some point in time. <laughs> <laughs> right on. Well, thanks, Chris. And thanks, everybody, for listening.